Welcome to the Achieve Results Nutrition and Wellness Podcast, the ultimate guide to feeling and looking your best. Join me, your host, as we embark on an exciting journey to discover the power of nutrition, exercise, sleep, recovery, and mental performance. Get ready to be inspired, motivated, and uplifted as we uncover the secrets to unlocking your full potential and living your best life. Whether you're a fitness enthusiast, a wellness warrior, or just looking to improve your overall well-being, this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and let's get ready to elevate our performance together. Today, I am extremely excited to have on two very special guests who have been extremely successful, obviously, in the fitness and wellness world. That is Melody Schoenfeld, who is a vegan strength athlete, singer, and author of Diet Lies and Weight Loss Truths, as well as her new book, which has recently dropped with Lee Boyce, titled Strength Training for All Body Types. She was named Trainer of the Year by the NSCA and has over 20 years experience in the fitness business. So we are very excited to have her on today. And she is joined by her companion on writing that book, Lee Boyce. Lee, if you don't know, has been publishing over 1,200 times across all the leading publications. He frequently lands TV and media spots to talk fitness. And when he's not doing that, he lectures around North America and abroad to share his best advice for personal trainers to get better at their jobs. These two guys are rock stars, and I am super excited to have them on with us today. Okay, so a huge welcome here to Melody Schoenfeld and Lee Boyce. So guys, thank you both very much for being on the podcast today. And let's start off with a little bit of introduction. Tell everybody about yourselves. And obviously, you guys have both extensive histories in the industry of, I think, 16 years for Lee, over 20, I think, for you, Melody. I'll, uh, I'll let you guys fight over who wants to go first and do a quick intro and let the audience, let everybody know where you started and where it's led you up until this point. Yeah, Lee. So, yeah, basically I was, uh, I guess it goes back to high school, playing sports, playing a lot of different sports and so on. I was into track and field, basketball, volleyball, baseball, football, you name it, all the sports. And uh, found out about exercise science as a course that was offered in my senior years. And I took it not once, but twice. Did well both times, was really intrigued by it. And that took me into uh, looking into kinesiology studies in university. At the same time, I was getting recruited for the track and field team. Being an athlete at the varsity level and studying that had shoehorned me into this sort of like world. And the whole thing about it was I wanted to, I wanted to decide whether I wanted to get into like chiropractic and other practitioner-based stuff, or if I wanted to do stuff with for lack of a better term, healthier individuals who weren't injured all the time. And I chose the healthy side where I was able to work with people who are doing things in motion, exercising and so on. And uh, that's what brought me to this. So when I was 20 years old, while I was still in school, I started my first job at a commercial gym. And really the rest speaks for itself in terms of the snowball effect. And 16 years later, here I am, worked for that company for four years, worked for a medical clinic as a trainer as well for two more years. And then since then, so 2012 until today, I've been on my own working for myself. And concurrently, I've been getting into, I had gotten into writing. I was able to break into different publications, T Nation being the first one ever. And I think that the next one after that was either Muscle Mag or Men's Health. And the opportunities started to open up from there. And it was really a little bit of an organic thing, but I was able to really stick with it and get 
be pretty well known in that space anyway, when it comes to writing. And yeah, that's uh, basically turned itself into a lot of speaking stuff and education. So these days I'm training for myself, like working with clients for myself. I am writing still, I am speaking and doing different engagements and I am online coaching, of course, but uh, lastly, I'm also a teacher. So I teach at a college here in Toronto as well. And that's for fitness and health promotion students and their diploma program. And that's been going on for the last five, five years. Yeah. That's my story. Awesome. Love it. I have a very different story. I did not grow up athletic. Unless you count, like I took dance classes growing up. That was about it. Cause you had to have culture. But in my family, you don't do sports, especially if you were a girl, like the boys can do sports. The girls aren't supposed to do sports. Well, what you do is you read books, you read a lot of books, and then you go to Harvard, and then you marry somebody who also went to Harvard, and then you have children who will go to Harvard. And that is what you do in my family. And I did not do that. But I was bullied growing up a lot. And I was the last one picked for every sport in school. And I was not athletic in the least other than just being a hyper kid who ran around a lot. And, and I, had, I had dance. I got a C in weightlifting in college. That was the only class I got a C in college. Harvard? And was that, no, University of Wisconsin. So okay. I got him to Cornell as a sophomore, and I needed somewhere to go for my freshman year. So I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison because it was far away from home. And I got a lot of grief about it because I turned down Cornell for Wisconsin. And my parents were pretty pissed. But... For what I'd studied, it was the number one school in the nation. So that counted for something. <laughs> Perfect. But I went to school for education and Italian. So I'm using that thoroughly. And uh, so I fell into this mainly because of my brother. I got out of college. I wanted to be a musician. And, and that was not a reasonable job choice in my family. So I needed to get a sensible job. And so I just took whatever I got. And so I took, I took a job as a assistant account executive at an advertising firm. And then I was making about $20,000 a year in New York city, which will pay for a sandwich baby. And, and so my brother at the time had a gym and he hired me on as a trainer on the weekend so I could make some extra money. So I could also buy a drink with my sandwich. So I start. I didn't know what I was doing. So he would write the programs and then, and then I would vomit them onto the, not literally, but I would then regurgitate the, uh, the programs to my clients or his clients really. And then I didn't like talking the talk without walking the walk. So I decided I would start practicing this. So I took the programs to the gym and I would do those or else I would just follow my brother around like a little annoying person and do whatever he was doing. And, uh, and then it just blossomed from there because I realized that I was tangibly improving people's lives, which is really all I ever wanted to do was just help people. And I wasn't doing that in any other job that I was doing other than music, which I still do. And so I just, you know, whatever else I ended up doing, I kept doing the training on the side and, and then it just exploded from there. Awesome. <laughs> no, that, that's super cool. I mean, it's interesting to hear the two kind of different stories because I feel like it, everybody feels like in the fitness industry, you have to be like this athlete that was like 
you almost made it or something and you went high level and just got into this because it was very natural but it it actually surprises me the amount of people that you speak to that maybe don't have that same track right it is an in, an interesting industry where a lot of people they're just maybe just sciencey type people and they they start getting into the movement and all that aspect of it right yeah i find it very interesting but what's obviously awesome for both of you guys and i find this funny is that you guys both obviously are super successful, but you say, we just did what we did. And it, things just happened from there, right? Where I think in the industry, there's probably a lot more people that have been working really hard for a long time and not seeing as maybe as much success as you guys have had. So I'd be super curious just to get an idea of what a couple of things that you guys have done that you think is super impactful that's ahead of the game. Impactful things that... I guess the one thing that I can say is there there was to this point, even currently and the beginning as well, and every time throughout, all the times throughout as well, I would say that I never shied away from doing some pro bono work. And I think that people might be a little bit ambivalent toward doing that, especially if they think that there's all kinds of mantras out there, you charge your worth and don't ever do, if you're good at something, don't do it for free and blah, blah. There's all of that stuff that goes around uh, spoken from the mouths of a lot of business tycoons and people like that. And there's a point to it, yes. But at the same time, if you don't take, especially considering the nature of what, it, what we do, is personal training is such a, such a personal job, right? And so if we don't take that into consideration when we're with people and developing people's skills and trying to build relationships, which is what this sort of hinges on and the cornerstone of what makes this industry work well, then and we're trying to look for a dollar every time that we interact with somebody. It's not going to go our way every single time. And it's not going to create as many opportunities for us as showing that we care would first. So that goes not only just in terms of getting clients and working with personal training clients, but also with if somebody does want to be a writer and somebody does want to start working for publications or getting out there and getting publicized on bigger platforms that are out there. And personally, I think that the platform is going to always think that they're doing more for you than you're doing for them. And in other words, them having you on the platform is going to give you a ton of exposure depending on what the platform is, especially if you're nameless in the industry outside of your immediate peers. Knowing that, they could easily get 10 other people who are willing to take your place right away who are pissing their pants for the opportunity to be on such platforms. So if the first thing that you're asking for is like money or figuring out what do they pay and all that stuff right out of the gates, and nobody even knows like a shred of your information or has any idea of what you're, you might be smart, but maybe you don't have the pedigree yet where people know who you are. You've got that sort of, that, that power, right? And I think very important to be able to extend yourself and show that this is coming from a place where you want to be doing something. You want to help out that person. You want to spot their form. You're not asking for anything out of it, at least not at this point. And yeah, down the road, you might see me again at the gym and ask me another question. And after that, if it means that you spend three months doing something like that, anytime that you see somebody and you run into someone at the gym, but it turns into a 15-year client after the fact, then Who's the real person who's winning? Like, of course you're going to win it. That's a big win for you. And uh, if we think long-term like that, then it's going to go a really long way. And it means doing a little bit of stuff for free and not being afraid of doing some things for free. Yeah, that's 
I did a very similar thing because I would just help people. If somebody was like, hey, I see that you're working out and I would really like to get into that, I would just take them to the gym and show them around. But I've also, I don't tend to do things particularly conventionally. And so if you were to ask me the path I took for something, I'm not sure I could really give you an answer because I just decide I'm going to do something and then I do it. I'm just like, I'm going to find a way to do this because this is something I want to do. Like my first book, I don't think anybody, any publisher would want it. And then I also didn't want anyone else's kind of input who I didn't ask for. So like for me, it was really important to have an unbiased book on veganism out there. There wasn't one. And so the people who I wanted to look at it were people who were not vegan, who were very high level in dietetics. And I found Mike Israel and Joe Antonio and a bunch of people. And I was like, tell me if I am doing this right. And then I self-published because I didn't feel like going through another entity and I don't think anybody would want it. I was like, I will find a way to make this work. And so I put it out and then Human Kinetics approached me about another book. It's like that where I just decide I'm going to do something and I'm going to do it. I don't go with the intention of dollar signs. I'm like, this is something I want to put out there or this is something I want to achieve. And then I just find a way to make it happen. And then in, I, and then I keep going. <laughs> I love it. You're like my wife. I just want, <laughs> she just, whatever she wants, she just, that's what she's doing. <laughs> and she'll always make it work. And I think that that's obviously, and that's a big thing, right? I think success, you know, even for myself, I went through dietetics, communication degree first time around, went back to school to be a dietitian, never took a business course or anything, but just started to decide, like, hey, this is something that I really am interested in and I want to do. And I think the more of those things where, like you said, like you're, you maybe don't even feel like it was something that was on your radar at the beginning. You start, the more you get into them, you start to understand that it just takes effort and the drive to succeed at it. It's not necessarily rocket science or anything that a regular person can't achieve, but it just takes the work ethic and, and the commitment to it. So I think that's totally. obviously huge. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever method you choose, it's going to be hard work. And it's not, the thing about training is it's not linear. Like you can't predict how many clients you're going to have from one day to the next. And so it's always a hustle and hard work, but you have to just, you have to just really want to do it. Totally. And that's what I love about the gym in general. Like obviously you guys, personal trainers, and that's the beauty of the gym and what I feel like it teaches people. So that's something that you guys have found throughout your career is like a lot of the, the hard lessons you learn with the iron carry forward or what? Definitely. Being a disciple of your own craft is definitely a, probably the biggest piece of the pie when it comes to being good at this. And it doesn't mean that a complete meathead gym bro who's only spending their time in the gym and not doing any sort of cross-referencing or research or reading or anything like that or attending any sort of educational events of any sort is going to be the best trainer out there. No, of course, there's going to be a balance of theoretical knowledge that they need to acquire as well. But that at the same time, there are people who are on the opposite side of the spectrum where all they're doing is reading and studying and looking at clinical this and looking at that. But 
they're doing so much of it that they're not even having the time to train and train themselves and train clients. And so the practical side of things, there's, it gets lost in translation, basically. On paper, there are a lot of things that, that can be suggested as the best way to go, best thing to do, best methods for hypertrophy, best methods for strength, the best methods for whatever, to, if you want to solve a chronic pain issue or whatever it is. And then in practice, you're going to run into clients who this stuff just doesn't work for in any, in, under any umbrella. And so what happens then? There are best programs that are out there as well. Something that our book talks about like crazy. There are lots of programs that are out there as well that don't take into consideration so many factors. How old is the person who's doing the program? What's their time? What's their body like? Like just all kinds of different stuff that I can go on and on about, but it assumes a lot of stuff without actually being able to see and deep dive into the individual issues. So you're going to get hit with clients who say, oh, yeah, I respond very differently to this compared to what I'm supposed to respond to. If you don't do programming or do any sort of working out or, or follow some kind of a system or structure, at least for any period of time yourself, you won't even know what the things that you program feel like to the client who's doing it. Doing a deadlift and a strict overhead press, that's a classic example of vertical push and pull right there, or vertical pull and push, I guess, in order, right? And a lot of people might think, hey, that's a great little pairing there if you wanted to make it a superset. And in theory, that might be true, but think about the forces that are being placed on something like your lower back, your spine, just as an example, for that particular pairing, there's no decompression aspect of that. It's purely compressive. So even though you're having those opposing vertical pushes and pulls, and it can make itself into a nice little neat little superset, you multiply that by four or five rounds, and you might be in a situation where you're not feeling that great after you've done that, or at least a person might not be feeling that great after they've done that for a number of reasons, pre-existing issues they might have, lower back stuff, you name it. From that example, just the, that simple example, is a, it brings the question like, okay, have you ever done this? Have you ever done deadlifts superset with strict overhead presses? And if you do repeats of it, how does it make you feel? Do you have to go really light in one for the other one to stay heavy? Do you have to go light in both? Can you go heavy in both? And if so, what are the outcomes in terms of what your response is to it? And now if you take Bob from accounting, who is your middle of the road lifter, who doesn't really train too much more than three times per week, who has who's middle-aged and has a family that they've got to be responsible for and you name it and you throw them into that sort of thing, will it act the same way to them? All of that is just to say the individual aspect is huge and having personal experience with these things by way of your own training, with working with many clients and so on, it's going to transcend things that you learn on textbooks or things that you learn from videos or things that you research from studies and all that stuff. It's going to be one of the most important pieces of the pie really get full understanding of it and a practical understanding of it. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. To build on that, just like from, I'm one of those people whose stuff that seems to work for everybody else never works for me. My body's so weird. And, uh, and I'm also somebody who is not built for any of the sports that she does. I've learned a lot of lessons from that, how to, how to find your strengths and and your weaknesses and create something that makes sense for what you've got going on. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's probably a perfect lead in to the book. So obviously you guys have the new book that, that just dropped, I believe 
this month, if I'm correct, and strength yep. training for all body types. So obviously we're talking about that, the strength training for all body types. And I know it's the tagline is the science of levers and stuff, right? Who would you say this book is for and uh, who's going to get the most benefit from reading it? The book is for everybody. It really is. Because like it says here, all body types, It everybody's got a body type. We go through 13 different combinations of limb lengths and torso and leg lengths and stuff like that to find whatever combination is yours in particular, the readers in particular. And uh, having said that, like someone's going to fit into some category somewhere. And that's what we wanted to really zero in on and then show an individualized approach to how to modify or select the common lifts that are going to suit that body type best. Uh, there's some programming examples as well in there, and there's a lot of different regressions, progressions, and so on, and uh, a whole lot of science and understanding of things like physics. And it says here, the science of lifting and levers, it has that little, an educational side of it with a little bit more of a mainstream reach at the same time so that it can really cater to whether it's a trainer, whether it's a recreational lifter, whether it's somebody who wants to train other trainers as well. It could, be an, it could be a resource like that. At the same time, it could be a really good guidebook for people who are looking to really take their programming or take their workouts and customize them, take them to the next level and really make big gains that are going to be safe for them and uh, keep them making uh, some strong lifts in the gym. Incredible. Awesome. Yeah. And I think obviously with the two of you writing, we have two pretty contrasting Bodies, right? Lee, you look like a fairly big guy, and Melody, you're a little on the smaller side, right? I'm sure the two of you guys put both your expertise into this one, right? One of the things I saw that caught my eye was the five overlooked factors of success that you've written about in the book. So, if you guys want to just go a little more, a little deeper into that, like what are the five overlooked factors that you guys are picking out that's preventing people's success in the weight room? Five overlooked factors of success. One main factor to me anyway, would definitely be the size of the individual for sure. So a lifter's levers or anthropometry is going to be like super important when it comes to making a program actually work for an individual. A program might ask for, let's say, I don't know, high volume for deadlifts. Let's just say as an example, right? many repetitions for many sets, maybe with low amounts of rest interval, just because those are the demands of that program and that workout. And you know, like in theory, it sounds like, oh, that sounds like a hell of a workout. It's going to be great. But it's going to act differently on somebody who's five foot five compared to somebody who might be six foot eight. And they're both doing the same deadlift to the same rate of perceived exertion, I guess, for lack of uh, uh, talking about the amount of weight they're lifting. And so what does that mean for the taller lifter? And like, how does this factor in for our training demands of the program, the, the demands of a program on our bodies? We think about work, which is the definition of it. It would be like force times distance, the amount of force they're applying against the resistance and how far they're moving that resistance. And so the taller lifter might have a little bit more work to do. We'll definitely have a little bit more work to do to scale compared to the smaller lifter. And if we multiply that by X amount of reps, and then we multiply that by X amount of sets, and that we limit the amount of time the spine, for example, has to recover in between, who might be at a little bit more of a risk category versus reward category in this example? And so these are the kinds of questions that are worth asking. And I think that out of the factors of success, that's one really overlooked factor when it comes to a standardized program, a fixed program that's out there saying, okay, do this workout at your own risk, go to town, and it might be great. It might be a great workout, but 
that's something that will always miss. They'll always miss being able to really factor in because it's a program. It's not a trainer who's there physically looking at you, assessing you, and being able to be able to make that judgment call to see what we want to modify or how we want to modify things. So I think that out of the five, and I know there's other ones, but I'll just start there and say that's a little <laughs> good overlooked factor for helping somebody get success in the program. Perfect. Yeah. And I think also just, uh, I think we do, just to piggyback on that, I think we have the tendency to try to, especially trainers who don't have a lot of experience yet with people and some who do, they have the tendency to try to pigeonhole every client into one textbook look. Like you, your lift should look like this, period. And that's not always true. For instance, with a round back deadlift, a lot of people are like, oh, you can't, you can't round your back in a deadlift, you're going to get arrested. But that's not, that's not true. I know a lot of extremely strong round back deadlifts who did not break their back, but it's not that how you do it it's not about the fact that their back is round it's how they brace through the exercise and things like that or or you have to have your knees directly over your ankles for this not everybody's knees do that not everybody's ankles do that and so what do you do when you have a client who can't do that I bring this guy up a lot because he sticks out in my mind but I had a client for many years who has what I like to call hockey foot where one of his feet was just permanently like this. He's not going to squat like everybody else. He, his legs sit differently in his body. And so you have to account for that stuff. He may not be able to, that he could, but someone else may not be able to squat at all. And so trying to force somebody into an exercise that you feel everyone should do, well, maybe not everyone should, or maybe not everyone can. Yeah. Another factor for that's overlooked in programs on top of those would be just the, the age of the lifter, right? And so there's two types of ages that are listed in this book. There's what I call the real age and what I call the training age, right? So a lifter's real age, just period, that alone can be a really good thing to, to examine. Because, okay, you do this exercise program, this strength program that's really awesome and it's going to get you serious games. You got to be lifting at percentages. You might be hitting 85, 90, 95% on given days and so on four, five, six days per week as your program. And then you have like a 59 or 62-year-old lifter who, who wants to do this, or maybe somebody even older than that. And it doesn't mean they can't do it, but a lot of other questions might need to be asked based on just their calendar age and how much wear and tear they've had, how much mileage they've got on their bodies, what programs have they done before this, what has their life been like to this point to now go and do this program? Is that program too aggressive for them or is it something that's going to be good for them? They might be athletic people, but we have to ask these questions when we're not dealing with someone who's 22 and fresh when it comes to every joint being functioning as perfectly as possible and so on. So I think that's a really big one. And to piggyback off of the real age, we talk about the training age next. Right. And so the training age is different than the real age because that 59 year old to talk about, they might have a training age of two or three. Maybe they just got into the gym. They just got introduced to this. And so they know it's good for them. So they start taking up weight training. Right. Whereas you could have a 25 year old who has a training age of 10 or 11 because they've been involved in training, whether it was weight training for a sports team that they're a part of or just wanting to get bigger or stronger or whatever since they were in their teenage years. 
And so that person's training age, they've been actually under the iron for longer, three times as long as the person who is much older by calendar. And uh, these things are going to factor in huge too, when it comes to just how we determine what their skill level, what their level of advancement is in their workouts. And of course, in selecting a program and how it's going to suit them. So training age and real age are both two factors that uh, need to be really determined. Obviously, if you just pick up a program off of a shelf, uh, it might be a great program. It might be very founded with a lot of, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a lot of research and a lot of data that really uh, supports it and so on. But it's, it might not be able to, and it definitely won't be able to determine exactly who's picking up this book and exactly how they should be approaching this sub based on those factors. So real age and training age are two more. Yeah, yeah. And to flip that a little bit, is there information in the book about, because I think obviously with the way things are going today to a lot of online-based training, app-based training, people are buying programs for 10 bucks a month on an app and really that's what they're rolling with. And obviously at that point, you're getting the stock program. And I think this is what you guys are speaking to is that a lot of these things, although they look great on paper, may not be great for the athlete or the person or the trainee. So would this book be a good resource for somebody who's in a program like that and maybe experiencing what we all experience, the back pain, the shoulder issues, elbows, whatever, knees, right? And be able to understand, hey, maybe I am, because I'm a different lever length, because I'm a different age, I'm a different training age, physical age, here's some of the adjustments that maybe these people can make. Absolutely. And honestly, people like that may not even realize it's an option to train any differently. And so I think if nothing else, a book like this opens their eyes to other possibilities. And they may not be the appropriate possibility for them, but at least opens their eyes to the fact that, oh, I don't have to look like that if my body doesn't do that. And that might actually not be the best thing for my body. Totally. And I think that's over my years of, I guess, what would my training age be now? I'm probably coming up on about an age 22 or something. But I, I think that's one of the things I wish you know, when you're younger, you don't realize that. Or when you're in on a sports team and you're training with a strength coach and the team, it's just you get in there and you do what you got to do. And there's not a lot of variability and you feel like you have to squat, you have to deadlift, you have to be doing the overhead pressing or you're not doing it right. And I think that's one thing where, you know, the whole, I guess the whole fitness industry in general, right? I think it would be more advantageous if people understood that there's a lot of ways to get results. It's not necessarily the traditional and the typical that a lot of these people are, are trying to force themselves into, right? The fitness industry is a very interesting place. People become extremely dogmatic. And it's interesting to me that people become so dogmatic about what are essentially tools. They're just tools. And so you pick the right tool for what you are trying to achieve. If you want to split a board in half, probably don't get a hammer. There's a lot of, for instance, like the kettlebell, when kettlebells were huge, I, I got certified in kettlebells and a lot of the people around me were just getting the name of their certification tattooed on their arm. And there was like a big debate between like hard style versus competition style and who's better and blah, blah, blah. and it was like you thought there was going to be a war breaking out between them. it was just crazy just like there was going to be like a whole like like a little on but anyway the whole thing was crazy 
but it's just an example of how dogmatic some of these things are. And then there's also, no, power lifting, you have to deadlift, you have to squat, you have, and if you're not doing it, you're, calm down, dude. Not everybody has those goals and not everybody has those abilities to begin with. Like some people shouldn't be deadlifting. They just shouldn't be. And there are other things that they can do and they'll be fine. And people are just so dogmatic. It's, uh, it's always just such an interesting thing for it to watch. When you bring the internet into the picture as well and social media, which is of course blasted off in the last decade when it comes to sharing information, sharing personal training advice, sharing programs and other workouts and all that stuff. And I'll use Instagram as the example because it's probably the most ubiquitous of them all. People are sharing things all the time, every single day, myself included. We're putting important po posts out <clears throat> that can not only confuse a person because of how much content there is that circulates, but also it can make, if you're not careful, it could make it what Melody was saying there, go to the back burner because of just, I don't know, the charisma of the individual, for example, who is putting out the information to make it sound like this is the one and only way you should ever do something. Yeah. And whether somebody's trying to do that on purpose or somebody is not trying to do that on purpose, it can be overwhelming for a person and especially somebody who doesn't know. I don't know how many people have actually had real conversations about that subject with your classic middle of the road client, not a client who really knows what they're doing and who spent a lot of time working out, but somebody who's just trying to get into it and find the right methods that they're going to work for them to make some initial gain. I've done that recently, this year, late this year, I actually had a conversation like that with somebody and they admitted, they're just like, I like, everybody says something different, man. I really don't know what to do. And I get all of this good information and I follow like 200 accounts on social media that have good content and people are saying this and that, and I just don't know what to do anymore. And it was harder than I thought it would be to even answer that question face to face with a person because understand what you mean that's it's crazy and i can only imagine what it's like being in their shoes when they're just inundated with this information from all these places because there are some people who might deliver information something like i do and some people who might deliver information something like melody does some people who might deliver information in a super duper technical way using all kinds of terms people who are more on the medical side of things where a lot of things might be contraindicated and we might want to avoid risk in these areas here and other people who are saying oh yeah, you can round your back when you're deadlifting. But I heard that was really bad for you. And this coach says it's horrible. And this journal says it's horrible. Right. And so on and so forth. Yeah. So there's so much that's packed into the internet being a major driver of the confusion and the overwhelm that's existing in the fitness industry. And what I was building to with all of that talking was to say that really, really makes it worse when the person who is disseminating information is intentionally being obnoxious when they do it. And uh, I have a major issue with this. It's a, just a personal gripe that I have with people who are almost intentionally dogmatic and really obnoxious with their delivery of being so much force in that delivery where you know anything outside of what they think is so ridiculous and such a write-off, a brush-off for them. And they talk down on so many other methods rather than just accept other methods and say, here's what I like to do. And I found that this works really well too. give it a try. And if there was a little bit more, I don't know, diplomacy in this whole industry where that sort of thing is concerned, I think things would go a long way and people would understand 
exactly what we're trying to display in this book, which is that this is individualized. Nobody all does the same thing. Some people don't work this way and other people work that way. And embrace the fact that you have different body types, embrace the fact that you have different methods that you're going to work for you and so on. Embrace the fact that you're not 21, you're 43, you're 55 and so on. And you want to strength train, you want to train hard and you want to train smart. What's it going to take? So that's where we want to go with this. And I think that it's a very important factor to, to just bring up because the internet is a huge catalyst towards doing a lot of good, but also confusing a lot of people or being a little bit more of a protagonist, right? an antagonist to us instead of a protagonist. So we got to watch that and be careful. Yeah. And there's that, I feel like there's three components really overwhelmingly contributing to that. And in our in, inherent in our industry. One of them is ego. There's a lot of ego in our industry, so much ego. And so the whole idea that I can't be wrong because I have been preaching this and this is my brand. And so I can't be wrong. That's problematic. Number one. Number two, there's a lot of sales in our industry. Somebody is trying to sell you on a product or an idea, or on themselves. And so that can come with a lot of propaganda, right? And then the third thing is the fact that our industry and the nutrition industry, to some degree, is science because you have to take the science into consideration, but then it is also experiential. And Trying to marry those two things is very hard for some people. If something that you experience or your client experiences does not follow the science, that can be really hard for somebody's head to wrap around. But then if you never take the science into consideration, that can be really problematic too, because we, that's, that is the baseline of where you should be starting from. It's just that brought up a really good idea that I I was thinking, right, as Mel was saying this stuff, is I liken personal training in a way to the difference between doing a math problem and playing the guitar, just as an example. And with the math problem, by and large, there's going to be a structure in a certain way that you have to solve this problem. You have to do this step, then you got to do this step, and then you solve for X, for example, and then after that, then you get your answer, and the answer is pretty definite. It's either correct or it's incorrect. And uh, that doesn't define how you coach or how you work out or anything like that. Playing the guitar, there are certain notes that you must play in order to make the song work. But there might be different techniques or approaches that you use with your fingers on the fretboard, what different ways you could make the same sound of a chord and so on in order to, you might have your fingers like this, you might make a bar with your index finger, you might go up high on the on the what's it called on the fretboard you might go down low on the fretboard in order to make might use different strings and so with that it just shows there are several different ways that you can actually play that song or there are a few different ways anyway right but the notes that are being played tune the pitch all that stuff or the key those are all going to be agreed upon by everybody that these are the right keys that you want to strike or the right notes the right strings or whatever so all that is just to say that even though the finite the outcome might be pretty unanimous, doesn't mean that it takes exactly the same route to get there, 
right? And so that's why a, a musical instrument is a kind of a good example of that. Like the guitar is a pretty good example of that because it does allow for a little bit of variability, even though all the pundits will say, okay, does the song sound correct or does it not sound correct? What happens if you have long legs and you want to squat? Every person who's worth their salt as a coach who wants to keep someone safe is going to say, okay, you want to pursue a flat spine. You want to pursue your heels staying down on the ground. And when you go down for your range of motion for your squat. And overall, that's going to be a good start to be able to squat safely and effectively. Okay, so now we start talking about high bar versus low bar. Front squat versus back squat, what's better? We talk about uh, knee break versus hip break, what's better? Well, this is where these things come to you. If you start saying, don't let your knees pass forward over your toes and drop your hips back first when you squat down, and that's the proper way to do squat, you're painting yourself into a corner because you're going to have a whole lot of people who aren't going to fit that set of cues and not get the best uh, result out of it. And I'm one, ex one example who's a walking, talking, living, breathing example of that. I would do horribly if I had to follow those cues, right? So for certain individuals, when you look at their body types, when you consider all those factors and all the stuff we talked about earlier in this uh, talk already, then it changes just how we might want to coach them, how we might want to cue them, and what we expect to see of them too, in order to get that desired outcome of a safe, heels down, proper, aligned squat. Awesome. Yeah, no, I think that's it, right? Like you said, there's, we're all searching for the same outcome and that's the betterment of the client, improve strength, improve body composition, injury-free, pain-free training. And I think, yeah, I think obviously you guys are, are hitting it on the head here with taking this strength training approach for all body types, because obviously we're all different. And like you said, when the three of us get in a room, we all hit a squat. It's all going to look different. It's all going to feel different. And we're probably all going to need something different. So that's awesome. And just out of curiosity, how did you guys team up on this? He begged me. We, we met several years ago at a conference and we, we just hit it off. We became buddies. People kept asking us if we were twins. And, and we put out like a video, not terribly long ago, like a year or two of, was it squat deadlift? Was that it? Or it was kettlebell snatch squat and deadlift. That's right. Squat, deadlift, and kettlebell snatch and how our bodies look so different doing them. And he, he put like all these angles and uh, that one took off a little bit. And, and that got me thinking, cause I had just put out my last book and I was like, I really want to do a book with you about this because I feel like there's a lot more to explore. Plus he's got his tall guy. Tuesdays and that's such a big such a big deal because all the tall lifters were feeling neglected by the establishment in general and they really took to his page and I'm like and I'm I'm doing all this stuff I sh probably shouldn't be doing and uh, why don't we team up and who who could be better than someone who looks like me and someone who looks like you to write a book about this so we so he was like I want to write a book. So we did it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, no, that that's cool. And yeah, yeah, you guys got it right on the cover, right? Obviously we got <laughs> two very different body types. So yeah, no, that that's really cool. And I guess this was something I'll get right into it now, but both of you guys obviously have extensive writing history, right? Lee, you've been all over the place. You've got articles published everywhere. Obviously, Melody, you've got another book and you've got plenty of things published as well. So what drives you guys into the writing aspect of the industry? I find that to just to be an interesting thing. 
I've I always liked to write. Oh, sorry. Oh, oh no, go ahead. I've uh, always liked to write. And and if I'm passionate about something, I want to put more information about it out there. So I've been writing since day one. This is my third book now, and I'm sure that I'm sure I will write more. Perhaps again with my friend Lee. But yeah, it's just yeah. It's I feel like when you really care about something, you just want to get it out there more. So writing is is a fantastic way to do that. I can't really say much different as far as like why I've got into it. I wanted to write too. So when I was pretty young, I was looking at places like T Nation to apply some good quick trading tips to my work on the floor, like my, my clients and stuff like that, the gym floor. And uh, I always viewed the authors, uh, the writers of these articles as like next level, this gurus, oh, the unreachable figures that were just, oh my gosh. And so that's what I wanted to do too. I want, I just want to, I want to be a part of that somehow. And so obviously my eyes were set on T Nation, as I said at first, yeah, I just worked as much as I could to just make contact with an editor and then go from there, make pitches and then finally get published. And from there, it really, uh, I already knew that I wouldn't stop if I started, like I would try not to stop if I started. And uh, yeah, that was, it was already a decision that was made before it even happened. And uh, luckily it did work out. And so like uh, different publications and all that stuff, the articles, uh, they, they kept on coming out and it really, again, like Melody was saying, it's a lot of, when you have a passion to talk about something, you want to get it out there on a bigger scale. So there is that, but I also just like how it, it hones a skill. It hones a skill of being able to you know, just be good at that craft or get better at that craft so that you can put out your, articulate your ideas in a better way as time goes on, because that feeds into the way that you speak too with clients and how you're cueing them and so on. And you might remember something that flowed so well paragraph wise that you put down on paper and so then you say that and you use that line to explain a concept or to help them understand how to do something and it just works. So I really feel that like at this point, it's like they serve each other, writing and then personal training, and then both of those things and speaking and then speaking and my teaching, like all that stuff, they all feed off of one another. And one thing helps the strength of the other three things and vice versa. But yeah, I just, I can't stop and I'm always wanted to start and it's just gonna it's gonna keep going this way awesome yeah no i can back that up because you know i got my own little ebook that i sell on my website as well and that was actually fun for me to write it turned into about 150 pager 15 chapters as i got going and but like you said the big thing is that for me it was when you learn how to put it on paper and you learn how to put it in the words of others so that they can understand, it really helps just the coaching aspect of everything too, because it's a really good way just, to, yeah, I guess hone the way you're speaking about something and the way you're thinking about things. So that's really cool. And speaking of books, Melody, I got to ask, obviously as a dietitian, you've got, you've got your book out about being a vegan strength athlete. So I'd love to know a little bit more about that. So I, in my opinion, the vegan diet is one of those, it's popular, right? It's popular with the people who follow it. And it's popular with the people who like to shit on it a little bit. <laughs> right? I think there's very two opposing crowds. So I would just be really curious to get your recommendations for 
undertaking a vegan diet while still being able to obviously maintain strength in a lean body. Because as a dietitian, I'm on this. I My big thing is that it can all work. I'm not married to any one process. I'm just trying to find the best approach for each specific individual that I'm coaching, right? I, I'd love to get your take, obviously, as someone who lives the life and written about it and studied it and everything like that. I've been vegan for 23 years and I'm vegan. I was vegan before vegan was cool. And I'm vegan for moral reasons. It's not for any reason other than I love animals. I do not want to eat them. That's pretty much all it is. And that's, I've been kind of like that since I was a kid where I was saving little bugs out of the water fountains and stuff. I've just always been on that trajectory. But I also am a science person. And so I, I feel that if you're going to cut out major elements of a diet, you need to understand the nuances of things so that you can do it optimally for your body. So from a protein perspective, which is the thing people always bring up first, right? Protein perspective, a protein is amino acids. Your body does not care about the source of the amino acids. It cares that it is getting them. So as long as you are eating a wide variety of protein sources, a lot of vegans need to eat a little bit more protein gram-wise than others. There's some debate on that. But for the most part, as long as you're getting the amino acids that you need to stay healthy, you are fine. So that generally means if you only eat lentils, that might be problematic because lentils have, it's like this with amino acids. I don't know if this is visually making sense to you the way it does to me, but it's like some of them you have more amino acids than others. And the idea is to get them all up there the way that you would for an animal product. At most animal products, you're eating muscle. So of course it's going to have everything you generally need in there. We don't get that with plant products as much. Quinoa is a complete protein source. Soy is a complete protein source. I want to say mycoprotein is a complete protein source, but that's about it. And then we, and then it's a matter of, of quality of protein. How does your body digest that? But as a general rule, if you're getting the amino acids, your body doesn't care. And that's been actually a recent, I think McGill just put out a study comparing equated proteins and veganism. And you saw the study, right? Between vegans and non-vegans. And it was like, no, there's no difference. So there's that. And that's been my personal experience with the diet too. I don't feel any different from when I ate animals, except I feel like lots of an asshole. Like I, I felt like an asshole every time I ate an animal. So I was like, well, I don't want to feel like that anymore. <laughs> So there's that part. And then the other thing is people are like, no, you have to take supplements. Most people have to take supplements, to be honest. Most people don't eat a complete diet. Most people are deficient in something. I work with anywhere from 60 to 80 nutrition clients online as a coach, a nutrition, as a nutrition coach. And I can tell you, like 90% of them don't eat vegetables. Yeah. People don't. And there's this whole weird dogma about how vegetables are bad for you now. Where I don't know where that came from. It's so weird. But yeah, we're not cats. We do, in fact, need vegetables. But yeah, if you're not eating vegetables, you are also not getting a huge source of nutrients. So yeah, you should be supplementing <laughs> to some degree. So yeah, I do need to supplement my diet. 
And as a general rule, you obviously you need the B12. You're not going to get B12 from plant sources as a general rule, except for nutritional yeast is one source of B12. Some seaweed has it and some mushrooms have it. But as a general rule, you're going to have to either get something that is enriched with it or you're going to have to supplement somehow. So there's one. Iron is one that people feel like if you're vegan, you're probably anemic, and that's actually not the case. But our sources of iron tend to be less well absorbed. But we have the benefit of we also eat, in general, a large amount of vitamin C. And vitamin C does help iron absorption. So even though the type of iron that we eat isn't as well absorbed, the vitamin C does help that a lot. And if you cook in a cast iron pot, that helps as well. But if you are anemic and you don't, and being a vegetarian or a vegan is not necessarily a precursor to anemia. I've never been anemic. I eat plenty of iron sources. But it does happen, I think, probably a little more in people who are vegetarian and vegan. And if you are anemic, you should talk to your doctor because you don't want to just supplement iron willy-nilly. That can be problematic too. And then the main one, I think, outside of that, calcium. A lot of vegans are lacking calcium. So that can be something you want to supplement as well. But there, there are some studies on supplementing calcium where you have to be a little careful how much you're taking. So you want to, and there's a lot of varieties of calcium that you could be taking. So you want to do a little research into that. The really big ones that are coming off the top of my head right now. And creatine, creatine. I want to talk about creatine because vegans do better with creatine than anyone else because we don't eat any sources of creatine. Creatine is found in muscle. And so obviously there's always non-responders to anything. Then there will be non-responders to creatine as well, but it's a small percentage. And if you are vegan, and if you're not vegan, you should be supplementing creatine. I'm a big fan of the creatine. Your grandma should take it. It's got cognitive benefits. There are, it's one of those, it's one of the very few supplements that I can say if, if I don't take it for a couple weeks, I can, there is a difference in my training and my recovery. And so that's definitely, oh, and DHA, EPA. Yeah. We don't eat fish oil, but we can eat algae and fish actually get their DHA from algae. So we're just cutting out the middleman and not getting the mercury because it's usually grown in, in the lab. So that's nice. And it, your body absorbs that about as well as it does fish oils and you don't get the fish burps. So that's nice too. I actually recommend vegan DHA for my non-vegan clients too, just because you don't get the fish burps. <laughs> smart, smart. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's the big thing, right? I think like anything, as long as you're covering your bases and you understand what you're getting into, right? Then I think obviously any, anybody can do it safely. I think, and I think whether you're vegan or whether you're anybody just trying to follow any kind of a, a whole food diet, I think sometimes what happens is it gets a little bit monotonous because the earth only provides so much. And then we turn into junk food eaters, right? So there's a lot of those junk food vegans out there who are more breads and chips and cookies and things that are still vegan, but those are people are still doing the same thing if they're not vegan anyway. Exactly. And and I, I think that's usually the issue, right? Is that it, what it, as people get a little bit bored with what the earth is providing and then we're turning to these more processed foods and just a little bit more convenience-based and then that's where people run into issues. It's not necessarily whether you're eating meat or not because obviously things can and get supplemented and 
whether you're yeah following a vegan diet or not most people are taking supplements anyway so i like your points yeah you raised some good points awesome cool all right so guys i guess the big thing is i just think for in terms of your book here where can everybody find it where should everybody reach out usa.com or is that hkusa.com did i say it right or Actually, I think it's us.hk, us.humanetics.com. Yeah, US. And I saw, is it available on your website too, Lee? Yeah, it's on the website, leevoice.com. And of course, amazon.com, amazon.ca if you're in Canada, and barnesandnoble.com. It's pretty much everywhere you can get a book right now, <laughs> as far as online outlets go. And uh, yeah, still believe we're working on getting it into a physical stores for bars and noble and indigo up here in canada and so on it's going to be out there it's going to be out there over the place right now and uh, lots of different places there are more that we're not seeing and it's also available as a kindle and ebook and all that stuff too yeah even people who are maybe outside of shipping ranges for a lot of those other sites uh, they can still get a hold of that ebook we've got a street team walking down the street with it just kidding we're not doing that sounds like you guys got your bases covered though and also Lee, speak a little bit about being on that men's health advisory board. What does that entail and how are you helping men's health? I've contributed to the men's health for a while now, on and off, especially for geez, since 2011. But uh, I do have a lot of contributions over the years with them. Being on the advisory board, it really it just means that you're now like one of the go-to expert sources or expert quote resources and so on for if somebody's working on an article or an editor's working on a piece or a contributor or a reporter is or a journalist there we go one of the journalists is working on a piece and they need an expert quote or they need somebody who's a professional source for this subject maybe it's strength training maybe it's something talking about taller lifters or whatever it is they can go straight to this advisory board member and it's going to be easier for them to contact somebody like this who's on this panel already for those kinds of questions. But on top of it as well, just being able to be there as one of the people who does contribute and uh, who does have a little bit of a, a face in the magazine or on the website and whatnot. Yeah, it's something that I believe this happened last year. But uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's been good. I don't really talk about it too much because I think that the title sounds a little bit more grandiose than it really is. It's just... It just means that you're an expert source and that you're one of the people that is that by track record has been relied upon to be one of their expert sources when needed. And uh, yeah, it's a nice little thing to, to have and it's there. But uh, yeah, I, I think that being a contributor to men's health is a bigger deal just because you have a byline article and you're putting those types of things out. It's a nice title. <laughs> yeah, perfect. You're kind of a big deal. Basically, that's what it is. It sounds pretty, pretty awesome to me. And if I'm being totally honest, you, know, you guys are, are two sources that, that I certainly look to, obviously, whether it's online or you know, reading articles or books. I think for every, I'm, I would assume most people are tapped into you guys by now, but if they're not, they absolutely should be. So where should, where should people find you guys? I'm at uh, leeboys.com and of course on Instagram, social media of all sorts. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, I'm at Coach Lee Boyce. And so you can find my stuff on my, uh, I post on Instagram every day. I post on Facebook regularly as well. And I try to make a tweet of some sort every day. 
So those are the handles. And uh, my website, leeboyce.com, has an archive of all the articles that I've written. So stuff that's coming out now, stuff that has come out 10 years ago, stuff that came out 13 years ago, it's all there somewhere. And you can go on a real, down a real rabbit hole looking at some of my old stuff and my current stuff, other things on there, media, television, all kinds of stuff, podcasts like this one too. So yeah, it's a nice little site when it comes to having all those kind of one-stop shop for everything that's there. My website is flawlessfitness.com. And if you, if you enjoy pictures of guinea pigs and dogs and cats and bad jokes and the occasional thing of me lifting, my, uh, my Instagram is at number five. It's five feet of fury one, but it's all abbreviated. So it's number five FT of fury and the number one. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll link it up obviously for everybody as well. So I'll put all your guys info in the show notes and everything like that. But uh, guys, I appreciate you being on here today. I'm excited for your book. I think honestly, the way you guys described it is perfect. It's like, this is, I think Lee's example of the guitar and there's obviously an outcome everybody's trying to get, but there's many different ways to reach that outcome. So if you're anybody obviously who's trainer and wanting to learn how to learn this stuff, but obviously I think just for me as a, someone who's just a general lifter at this point, it would be super important to read that and just understand my body type, my lever lengths, and how that's going to affect me in the weight room and avoid some pain, avoid some injury and promote some further gains. <laughs> yeah, we were really joined the debate between the top, the subject of that, that title, Strength Training for All Body Types, or just the guitar, because we thought that would have been a good title as well. But that's right. Offensive of interest for new musicians out there. I think you chose the right one. So sounds good to me. But awesome, guys. Well, thanks very much for being on. I appreciate your time always. You guys are rock stars in the industry, and it's a pleasure to be able to connect with you and speak with you. So thank you guys for your time, and I look forward to speaking with you guys in the future. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Please note that this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information shared on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be used as a replacement for the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider. Additionally, the opinions and strategies discussed on this podcast are those of the guests and host and do not necessarily represent the views or endorsement of the podcast or its creators. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.